morning. This is the day that the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. A um, couple things announcement-wise. We are having the Creation Apologetics Conference on the 30th and 31st of August. i got to catch my breath, sorry. Um, make sure you sign up. For, we're not doing sign-ups. You can show up, but plan. Put it on your calendar. Uh, mark your calendar and come join the Body of Christ on that Sunday and Monday night. I will have coffee and snacks for those that are good. Um, for those that are bad, just coffee. The, uh, so make sure you come to that. Women's ministry is starting up. They'll start doing sign-ups. Uh, Melissa Smith is my favorite wife. I don't know if you've met her. Uh, only wife, only wife. And she is the women's ministry director. She's going to take that role on for a year and just see where we're going to go and kind of uh, there's been a lot of help and so thank you for all those gals that have jumped on I know they have a meeting tomorrow so be praying for women's ministry here at his place as they kind of revamp and relook to the future um, but yeah so those signups and those classes will be forthcoming um, the last thing is communication if you look around we have about 300 plus people that call his place home and just by quick count. They're not sitting in the pews here today. There's a couple families back in the back, um, and many, many people are watching from home. So it's tough to communicate. So even, 
I know all, everybody's live streaming it right now. They don't wait till Sunday afternoon. They're not skiing or hiking right now. They're actually joining us online. Um, but the communication, we want to make sure we're communicating things well. So the newsletter, we sent a newsletter out, and it, we have about 45% open rate on the newsletter. So about 279 people we send it out to, and about half those folks open it up and read it. So if you are not getting it, sign up. Send an email to info at hisplace.org and get on the newsletter so we can get that information out to you. If you're not opening and it's going to your junk mail, switch to Gmail. I don't know. Then, then you can, uh, but if you have questions, you can always get on the website, call the office. Um, there are communication cards out on the information table that you can fill out um, if you want to be communicated to that way. And again, you can always call the office or email anybody at the office, david at hisplace.org. If you have problems or complaints, jason at hisplace.org. Um, that's how we, we do that. This morning, um, there was suggestion, uh, Jason German, who's preaching this morning, we were talking this week, and we were talking about what passage to read before the message, and we talked about Psalm 136. And Psalm 136, if you know, know it, it is a responsive psalm. So there's a statement, and then the people say. And so today, I want the people to respond. And you'll get very, very quickly. This is one of those verses in the Bible that if someone says, how many Bible verses do you know? I, over, I know a thousand memorized Bible verses. But they're all from Exodus and Leviticus where it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying. That's, there's 38 that start like that. Um, this is one of those verses that you, you'll, you'll catch on very quickly. So as I'm going to read, and I want you guys to respond, and then we will pray and continue in our time of worship in song. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders. To him, by understanding, made the heavens. To him who spreads out the earth above the waters. Steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights. Love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day. His love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his hosts in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. Steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Shion, king of the Amorites. Steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan. 
and gave their land as a heritage for steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant. That's love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state and rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. I love that psalm as it walks through, walks through the history of his people and the response, his steadfast love endures forever. Does it endure today? Absolutely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Holy Father, you are a God of great mercy, kindness, long-suffering, and your steadfast love does indeed endure forever. Father, we worship you because you are worthy of worship. You are, you are king. You are sovereign. You are the creator God. You made the sun, moon, and stars. You made the seas. You made everything that dwells in them. Father, you made us. You created us in your likeness to be worshipers of you. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that your steadfast love endures and we can see the story and the proofs of your love. Throughout history, in our own lives, Father, in your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. Thank you for this body of Christ here. Thank you for bringing these people together to love you, to honor you, and to love one another. Help us today as we continue in our time of song to worship you with full hearts because you're worthy of it. In your son's name we pray, amen.
Psalm 3 says, Thou, O Lord, art a shield about me. You are my glory, the lifter of my head. I call out to the Lord, and he answers from his holy mountain. I want to take this time as Trevor continues to pray. We're just going to call out to the Lord, each of us individually. Take a moment, call out to him, whatever's on your heart, state of the world, some mess that you find yourself in. We're just going to take a moment to just corporately pray. If you don't have anything pressing on your heart, pray for somebody you see in the auditorium. in heaven we thank you for the shield you are around us we thank you for these wonderful gifts that you give us we thank you for the closeness of your presence we thank you that you bought and purchased us that we might know you face to face nose to nose heart to heart we thank you for the new life you've given us a new heart and a new mind help us to walk in the truth of those things and we are new creations in you old man left behind thank you, Lord, that you give us in your word a glimpse of the glory that awaits what your throne looks like. Because better is one day in your court than a thousand elsewhere. One 
God, we thank you for this time. We lift you high and magnify your name. Let your word just be emblazoned on our hearts this week as we go forth and rub shoulders with people around us. We thank you for our time together, and it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. All right. Get myself arranged here. And we will find our place. In Second Peter for today. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I'm sure there are some. My name is Jason German. I'm one of the elders here at His Place Church. Um, we've been working our way through uh, both of Peter's letters to the church, and this week we'll be starting into chapter two of Peter's second letter. Now, I'd like to ask a question, kind of as a way of review, uh, before we dive in here a little bit. Uh, to make sure that we have an idea of what Peter wants to give us as a takeaway from this letter as a whole and from where we've been thus far. Why, why has Peter even written this letter? 
uh, some false teachers. We see that, and that's where we're going to go today. But I submit to you that Peter wants the believers of Jesus Christ to be strong in their faith through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want us to fall. In 2 Peter 1.10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, the ladder of faith that we see in verses 5 through 8, right, you will never fall. Peter is a man who's familiar with falling. Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial is recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. Luke records it this way in Luke 22, 31 through 34. He says, Simon, Simon, Jesus speaking here, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter did indeed deny knowing Jesus three times that very night. But Peter's faith did not ultimately fail. The fact that he wrote this letter is one indication of his continuing faith in Jesus Christ. What Jesus predicted and what Jesus prayed for came to fruition in Peter's life. I think Peter has this on his mind when he's writing this letter. Jesus called him both Simon and Peter in that passage that we read there in Luke. It's interesting to me that Peter introduces himself in this letter the same way. Peter knows uniquely the pain of denying Jesus Christ. But Peter introduced the theme of falling in this 10th verse of the chapter 1 as an integral part of his purpose in this letter. There's another thematic word we find in 2 Peter that's also found in Luke 22, 32. When Jesus says, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. David Helm notes that the Greek word translated as strengthen in Luke there is the same word used repeatedly in this letter to convey Peter's intention in writing, sometimes even negatively as unsteady, the negative form of the same word. In chapter 112, Peter says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established. That's the word. In the ESV it's translated as established in that verse. But the Greek word is the same word. In the truth you have. When Jesus used this word, strengthen your brothers, in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, 32, he meant it. And Peter took it to heart. And we get to watch Peter do that. He did, you can see in the book of Acts, he did it between Christ's resurrection and accession and the actual increase of the church at Pentecost, right? You can see him do it throughout the life of the early church in Jerusalem as well. He's strengthening the brothers constantly. Now later, 
In 2 Peter 2.14, speaking of false teachers, Peter says, they entice unsteady or unstable souls. The Greek word translated as unsteady is the negative form of the word that elsewhere is translated as strengthen. Peter moved from falling to finishing well. He obediently strengthened the disciples following the resurrection and the ascension and during his time as a leader in the church of Jerusalem. You can read all about that in Acts. We won't spend time on it today. Peter wants the recipients of this letter to be strengthened and also to finish well. And I believe his desire is for us to finish well without falling. So what then, we might ask, does Peter have in mind that could make us fall? Peter clearly tells us in this letter that false teachers are a hazard to us as we run our course. That's what he's got in mind. So now that we've got some context here in mind, and we've kind of revisited what we've learned and where this letter is going ultimately, I'd like to ask you all to stand with me. We're going to read our passage for today. Um, What we're going to focus on today is chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But I would like to read, starting at verse 1, and carry through, first one of chapter one, I'm sorry, and carry through uh, verse 10. And I'm going to stop halfway through 10 at 10a today uh, because there's a, there's a pretty significant shift in, in uh, general thought and purpose in the middle of that verse. So I'm going to hold to one thought and not dive into the, la- the next one. We won't have time for it. So chapter one is the context for all that we're going to be talking about today. So we want to be refreshed on it. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith equal of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in, the, in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality and become and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed and in their greed they will exploit you with false words their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep for if god did not spare angels when they sinned and cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved noah a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly if by turning the cities of sodom and gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous, under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Holy Father, this is your word for us today. This is a word we confess that we don't like to look into, quite frankly. We don't like to hear about the destruction of the ungodly. We don't like to hear about judgment that is inescapable. But Father, your word is true. 
And we know you to be a righteous God. We know you to be a just God. We know you to be a God who is full of steadfast love and patience and grace and mercy and truth. And so we cling to you and we ask you, Father, to reveal your truth to us, the whole breadth of it. And I ask you, Father, to use me, to speak through me, because I am wholly inadequate to convey this message with all of its force and with all of its power, as you have ordained it to be proclaimed. So use my mouth, Lord, and speak through me, so that your people may be encouraged and saved. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Seems kind of like a mouthful, doesn't it? Sure does to me when I'm the one that gets to preach it. Now, as we move from chapter one into chapter two, I want to first point out that although Peter's tone and approach seem to change significantly, and they, they do really, his purpose is still the same. And that purpose is to make us firm, stable, and established, unwavering in our faith. John Piper notes that chapter 2 is the other side of the coin from what Peter said in 1, 10, and 11. There he said, quoting that verse, those verses, be zealous to, conform, to confirm your call and election, for if you do this, you will never fall. So there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But here in chapter 2, he says, if you contradict the doctrine and character of God's elect, you will fall. And there will be no entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord, but instead eternal destruction in the gloom of hell. That's a pretty sudden shift, isn't it? Now, as we get going here, there's a couple of threads that are worth noting today. And the first thread that's worth just paying attention to and following through here is that I want you to see these, is that Peter states in, in chapter 1, verse 16, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, and many will follow their sensuality. The idea here is following. In 2.15, Peter again says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam. And finally, in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. What we follow matters. The second thread I want us to see here is truth. First Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Second Peter 1.12, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Second Peter 2.2, and many will follow their own their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. 
Similarly, Peter states in 2.3, they will exploit you with false words, untruth, untruth. Peter is giving us truth. False teachers give us lies. Now, I point this out because it's helpful to see that Peter has false teachers in mind right at the start of this letter, right from the get-go. What he's written in the first chapter is strategically designed to highlight the contrast between true believers and false teachers because we need to know the difference. Now, I want us to notice just real quickly also that the train of thought from Chapter 1, verse 21, the last verse of chapter 1, moves very fluidly right into chapter 2, verse 1. Okay? Now let's start breaking this down. I, I want to start by talking about some facts about the false teachers as Peter presents them. Who are we? Who are they? First of all, they're present, right? 2 Peter 2, 1, but false prophets also arose among the people. Peter's referring back to Old Testament. Even as God was raising up prophets, false prophets rose up right alongside of them, right? Just as there will be false teachers among you. So the pattern in the past is going to carry forward into the future. He says this with a future tense here. But we see pretty quickly in the, later on in the letter that he's really talking about right now also. It's, it's happening now in the context of the letter at the time that he's writing it. And it's no different for us today. Now these false teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. They're among us, Peter says. He states it as a fact. They're not only on the outside of the church. They're not only just out there. They're right in here. Brings to mind uh, Paul talking to the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts before he's about to leave. It's going to be his last time with them. And he tells them, there will be wolves that will rise up from amongst you. From amongst you. This isn't a new or novel idea to Peter. We see it elsewhere throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New. Jesus himself warned of false prophets in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. It's Matthew 7.15. Paul writes repeatedly about false teachers in many of his epistles. Paul's second letter to Timothy was also his last testament, similar to what Peter's second letter is that we're working through right now. Peter knew this was his last letter to the churches. Paul's last letter to Timothy was his last letter. He knew it. He knew his time was coming up. And in the same way, Paul speaks extensively in that letter to Timothy, in remarkably similar fashion as Peter does here in this letter. He's exhorting Timothy to make sure that he's got a firm foundation in the gospel, in the scriptures, and he's, he's telling him about false teachers and describing them 
the similarities are remarkable. Now, there's a strategy to these false teachers. We've established they're here. They have been, they are, and they will continue to be until Jesus comes and takes us home. This is something we must face. Now, they have a strategy. First of all, they work undercover. They come in secretly, Peter says. They're smuggling in ideas alongside of true doctrine. It isn't that their teaching itself is secret. They teach, right? But it's the deceptive nature of their teaching that's hidden. Think about it this way. No false teacher announces himself as a false teacher. Right? But they are nonetheless, aren't they? And what are they teaching? They're teaching destructive heresies. False teachers bring in destructive heresies. Heresies that the ideas things, differences in the doctrinal truths of of Scripture and of the gospel itself that destroy. Peter's not using this term flippantly. They destroy by telling lies about Jesus Christ and his work for us and in us. By these heresies, people are hurt. This isn't a joke. People are hurt, even destroyed. Heresy is not harmless. It's not harmless. These people are fundamentally sensual. Verse 2 notes that what they offer is sensual or shameful, depending on the translation you're looking at. Verse 2 notes that, or I'm sorry, that the word used here is, is repeated. And Peter repeats it in verse 7 and again in verse 18 of chapter 2. And it can be translated, it's the same word, but you'll see it translated as filthy or lustful or licentious. You get the idea of what they're bringing in? This is very often, and Peter uses it this way through this contextually, it's very often has a sexual orientation to it. Now, they take advantage of people. They're not ashamed to exploit you because they're also greedy and covetous. They aspire to advance themselves, their ideas, their public esteem at the expense of others, even as they desire to take from you and pad their pocketbook. They don't see approval or sustenance from God That's not what they seek. They really seek to take from you what God has graciously given to you. They're not seeking him. They're stealing from him at your expense. They're crafty. They're crafty. They use false words. Lies, that is. They create stories or narratives about themselves, perhaps, or very likely about some new angle of the faith. They're crafty with their words, kind of like the serpent was in the garden. Some have described 
chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 as the ladder of faith. Add this to this, right? If we were to similarly align the traits that we see here of false teachers as Peter presents them, I think I'd call it a highway to hell. It can only go one place. So that's a little bit about their character, their nature, kind of their strategy as they come to us, as they interact, as they work amongst us. Now let's talk about the impact of these false teachers. Second Peter, in 2.2, we see that many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Many will follow their sensuality, their destructive ways. This reminds us that false teachers are actually popular. The fact that something succeeds in attracting the crowd of followers doesn't mean that it's of God. We've seen that quite a lot in the news lately, haven't we? A lot of crowds. Not a whole lot of it has much to do with righteousness. God's work will always bear fruit. God's work will always bear fruit. But the devil's work can also increase. Now, because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. They claim the name of Jesus Christ, but they ultimately act in filthy, shameful ways. Based on much of the language here used in, second, in this second chapter, it would appear that much of the outward behavior includes sexual practices that are, or admonishing or encouraging sexual practices that are outside of God's ordained purpose, For sexual union between a man and a woman. Right? Non believers look at their conduct. Functionally, this is what it's saying. Non believers look at their conduct and rightfully think, that's sure not in alignment with what I hear about Jesus or God or godliness. I've heard a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount, and that sure wouldn't be in alignment with what Jesus taught. By claiming Christ and acting in blatant disobedience to his commands, God's holy name and honor are disgraced publicly. Why would anybody follow this junk? Alistair Begg quoted another Scotsman by the name of Alexander Nisbet while addressing that question. Nisbet said... It is not strange to see that the most dangerous heretics have many followers, every error being a friend of some lust. Did you hear that? Every error being a friend of some lust. They're successful because they bait the trap with something we want. Their appeal is aimed at tapping into a hunger or something unsettled, something unstable that is deep in our hearts. Brian Chappell says, the reason sin has any power in our life 
is because we love it. But Brian doesn't leave us there. Thank God he doesn't leave us there. He also continues on to say that that it's good to know, to know that because the power over that sin is a greater love. Peter starts this letter by reminding us of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the value of knowing God and Jesus Christ. Now Jesus said in John 14, 15, 14, 5, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do you see that? If you love me, you will keep my commands. A greater love overcomes sin. That's the way past the temptation to sin, is to love something greater than the object of that sinful desire. And in Christ, we have that power. The fact that false teachers are and will be amongst us is not all that distressing, quite frankly, when we consider that they always have been amongst God's people. It's not new. What is distressing is the fact that so many of us will follow their destructive ways because we've not held fast to Jesus because we lost our first love. Now let's back up just a step. What was that about denying the master who bought them? False teachers deny the Lord who bought them, Peter says. Now I want us to note that Peter never calls them brothers or believers or saints. In chapter 2 alone, just in chapter 2, he calls them false teachers, blots, blemishes, waterless springs. That's not just a funny little thing. To that culture, if you're running around in the desert and you're herding sheep, whatever it is, and there's a spring that you know of and you, want, you need the water there. Your livestock needs the water. If you show up and there's no water, it hurts. It may actually kill. They're waterless springs. And more, he calls them. Peter identifies them with the dog and the sow of Proverbs 26.11. The dog that returns to his vomit and the sow that rolls in the mud after she's been washed. He says they follow the way of Balaam as opposed to the way of Christ. I do not believe that Peter's saying that these teachers were saved and then lost their salvation. That would contradict a whole host of Scripture. So if all of Scripture is true and unconflicted, then that cannot be our summary conclusion about what Peter's saying here. Wayne Grudem offers us some help with this by pointing out that in line with this clear reference to false prophets, speaking of this verse, in the Old Testament, so Peter in this verse is pointing back to Old Testament false prophets, Peter also alludes to the fact that the rebellious Jews turned away from God who bought them out of Egypt in the Exodus. From the time of the Exodus onward, any Jewish person would have considered himself or herself one who was bought 
by God in the Exodus, and therefore a person of God's own possession. In this sense, the false teachers arising among the people were denying God their father, to whom they rightfully belonged. So the text means not that Christ had redeemed these false prophets, but simply that they were rebellious Jewish people, were church attenders in the same position as rebellious Jews, who were rightly owned by God because they had been bought out of the land of Egypt or their forefathers had. But they were ungrateful to him. Christ's specific redemptive work, Grudem still saying, is on the cross is not in view in this verse. Okay? That's not what he's saying here. And that's all I'll say on that today. Now these people bring on themselves, note that they bring it on themselves, swift destruction. They're destined for a swift destruction. Note that the destruction is promised, promised is attributed to them. It's they've, they're reaping what they've sown. In other words, Peter says they bring in destructive heresies, they're going to reap destruction. We may not see it happen. And they likely will deny that God will even do so. But Peter states this as a fact. And we'll back it up here shortly with some historic examples of the same thing. So they have a destiny. 2 Peter 2.3 says, In their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. Their judgment is coming. Peter assured us that these false teachers will be judged. Even though it seems that they prosper, their judgment's not idle. God's wrath pours out on them, even in allowing them to continue, hardening their hearts as they go, thus heaping up more and more condemnation on themselves. The more they do, the deeper in it they are. But God knows how to take care of both the righteous and the ungodly. That's what we get to see in these three pictures that he presents to us in verses 4 through 6. Let's read that real quick. For God, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Stop there. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, God judged wicked angels. He set them in chains of darkness, and they are in bondage awaiting their ultimate judgment. These are celestial beings. God didn't spare them. God's justice is applied to all, Peter's saying. 
This is oftentimes viewed as kind of an obscure passage that references angels and the sin of angels. And most theologians that seem to dig into this try to explain it by kind of looking back at the another kind of obscure passage that references the sin of angels back in Genesis 6-2. And, you know, they try to figure, well, it's, but the, but the reference to angels in, in Genesis 6-2, sons of God, that's there, is disputable whether it means angels or men or it's, I mean, that's in dispute too. So I'm not going to try and figure that out today. That's not what we have time for today. And that's not what Peter's talking about in this letter anyways. So we're not going to dwell on that, but I want to make it clear that what Peter is saying, the point here is that even angels are not exempt from God's judgment. So why should you think you might be? Next, he moves on to the ancient world. God judged the ancient world, the world before Noah in the flood. The whole world came under God's judgment because the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 5. Hebrews eleven seven, we see that by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. As Noah spent a number of decades building an enormous boat on dry land, God warned the people through him. He was a preacher of righteousness, God's righteousness, and a proclaimer of their unrighteousness in turn, right? Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. What that means is that God's imminent righteousness, righteous judgment was proclaimed through Noah to the people who were under God's wrath. The judgment was certain to come because God proclaimed it through Noah. It was not inescapable. Indeed, Noah and his family escaped it. Had others repented, they too, they may have been able to escape it. But none did. Just like the people of Nineveh escaped judgment through repentance, even though Jonah, who God sent to proclaim his judgment, wanted to see them destroyed, they repented when they heard of their impending destruction, and God relented. God always responds with mercy to those who earnestly repent. In all of this coming destruction, God graciously reveals a way out. It's his grace that saves us. And then he turns to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, making them an example of his judgment because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, the Lord said in Genesis 18.20. God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah was swift. 
the flood came upon people pretty swiftly when it came. We may be long in waiting to see it come, but when it comes, it comes swift. And there's no escaping it outside of repentance. Now these three examples show us an important principle that Peter wants us to understand and he wants false teachers to understand. God judged the angels who sinned so no one's too high to be judged. God judged the ancient world so God doesn't grade on a curve. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah who were exceedingly wealthy and rich and confident so even the prosperous can be judged. There's no one outside of God's judgment if they're walking in unrighteousness. Therefore, the ungodly have no reason to think they can escape God's judgment. That's the point Peter's making. God's judgment covers everything it's supposed to cover. He doesn't miss anything. And we don't get to weasel our way out of it in any way. Right? So the righteous will be delivered, though. We see this in the story of Lot. That's, Peter slips in here. Not slips in. He, he gives it to us for a really good reason. So if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual... How many times have you thought, if you know the story of Lot in his life, of him as righteous? Three times here, Peter calls him righteous. And quite frankly, the fact that God saved him when Abraham had, had asked him if there's any righteous in there, don't destroy the city. And God reached in and he pulled out Lot and his family and destroyed the city. That shows that God counted him righteous. So Peter's not making this up. He's understanding what God's actions said. So Peter already told us how the Lord delivered Noah. And now he shows us that the Lord delivers righteous Lot. Peter takes a moment here to reflect on the preservation and the deliverance of Lot. In doing so, Peter highlights that God saves in his grace and mercy, even as he destroys in his righteousness. God's goodness led him to to save righteous Lot, even as his justice led him to destroy rebellious Sodom and Gomorrah. We can't separate these attributes of God. They are coupled together in his character because he is all of it. At the same time, all the time. We don't get to deconstruct God and make him how we want him to be. If we do, we're not worshiping this God. Lot's soul was tormented, but he failed to follow through with godly actions and separate himself and his family from the ungodliness of Sodom and Gomorrah. Perhaps he was afraid of kindling the people's wrath against him if he were to speak the truth of God's holiness to them. 
I think a lot of us can probably identify with that these days in the cancel culture that we live in. He clearly knew God's standard because he was tormented in his soul over the lawlessness of the people around him. He knew God's standard. We don't know any of that, but it, it has to make us wonder. It makes me wonder. Is my soul tormented by the lawlessness of the people around me? If it isn't, why? Why isn't it? If it is, what am I doing about it? Am I just gritting it out silently? Am I presenting the lawgiver with the hope of repentance and salvation in Jesus Christ? I don't think I want to be like Lot, deemed righteous by God, but escaping judgment with nothing to show for my righteousness other than my very life. I want to be saved. That's not what I'm saying. But I don't want to be just barely saved. Lot lost everything he possessed. He escaped by the skin of his teeth, so to speak. The Lord delivered Lot because of his righteous soul, yet Lot lost everything else. Because to put it like Peter does, he wasn't increasing in the qualities that mark a godly man. And it's important for us to see that here. So even as the Lord delivered Lot and Noah, he knows how to deliver us from temptations we face. That's what Peter's telling us here. And he knows how to reserve the unjust for the day of judgment. We can trust in God's deliverance of the godly because it's just as certain as his judgment of the ungodly. There's hope in God right here. There's great hope, both for those who persist in Christ despite the temptations of false teachers and for those who have fallen also. Those who've fallen and followed false teachers, you're not too far from God. He can still save you if you turn to him. The indictment of the false teachers has been written and judgment has been pronounced. If you followed wayward teaching and you now recognize it for what it is, repent, turn away from it. Don't just turn away from it, but turn to Christ. Turn to Jesus Christ. Look again on him. He is the author and the perfecter of your faith. Believe in him alone for salvation. The unjust have a reservation made for them. They're reserved for the day of judgment. But believers have no such reservation. The unjust have to advocate for themselves before a holy God. Jesus Christ himself stands as the advocate for us. He is the mediator between God and man. If we trust and love him. God will deliver us from the very day of judgment, from the very time of wrath that he pours it out on the earth. The unrighteous are already under 
punishment. Somehow, they're already experiencing judgment now, Peter says. Alistair Begg says that even as the believer experiences a foretaste of heaven, so for the willful impenitent, there is an indication of hell. They taste it. They feel the weight. And they kick at the goads. What's Peter really just told us here? God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. He cares deeply for those that he has called to himself. And he cares deeply about what he has said of himself and of his son. He will not be mocked. God has unequivocally pronounced judgment on unrighteousness. Let me read you something from Jeremiah 6. This is God proclaiming judgment in the days of Jeremiah on the false prophets that were Jeremiah's contemporaries. God says, Jeremiah 6, starting verse 13, from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from the prophet to the priest, this is who he's talking to, these are the false teachers and false prophets. From the prophets to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly. They've left you with a festering wound, he says. And they're saying, peace, peace. It's all good. When there is no peace. God was proclaiming his just judgment on the people of Israel, on the people of Judah, through Jeremiah. And these people said, no, no, we're all good. We're still in God's grace. He doesn't, he's not judging us. There's nothing to judge. We're righteous. Do what we tell you to, and you're righteous too. There was no peace because judgment was coming. It was imminent. Were they ashamed, he continues? Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They didn't know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Do you think God cares about his people? Do you think God cares about the truth of his word? This is just one example. God is deeply offended by people who twist and misrepresent his word and his person and his son and defile his people and lead them away in chains to gloomy darkness. This is not a light matter. It shouldn't be to us because it isn't light to him. This matters, brothers and sisters. Judgment of unrighteousness, then, is an inevitable 
inescapable reality for those who persist in unrighteousness. Now, God's ability to save the righteous is unpreventable. Those who love God and follow his ways can never be snatched out of his hand. We are unable to save ourselves. We're unable to save anyone else from the judgment of God. God alone, through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is able to save all who understand that they are condemned to God's judgment because of their own sin and believe that Jesus is the Christ and that his sacrifice on the cross is the only sufficient and substitutionary payment for their sin. That's the gospel. That's the good news we have in Christ Jesus. It's through belief in Jesus as the Messiah, the Holy Son of God, who gave up his life as a ransom for your life. You deserve death for your sins, but Jesus died in your place so that through belief in him, your sins could be forgiven and you could be rescued out, out of the coming judgment. Jesus is the only one who's rushing you out of Sodom and telling you to run to safety and don't even look back as the fiery judgment falls. Jesus is the ark that carries you through the flood of judgment. He's the vessel of your salvation. Him alone. Don't let anybody give you a false replacement. Ever. Remember Jesus. Remember his promises. Remember his commands. And walk in the virtue of Christ to be strengthened. If you've never believed in Jesus, if you feel the burden of your sin and judgment that will surely come, and even now is coming, then I plead with you, please, please, call on his name. Call on his name now. It's no good to wait. There's no good reason to wait. You don't know when that judgment is coming. And when it comes, it's coming fast. You can't get out of it at that point. Repent now. Call on him now. And he'll forgive your sins in his own name. His own name. And he will give to you his righteousness. There's not a single Christian that ever makes it into heaven based on their own self-righteousness. That's why Christianity is different from every other religion. It is only in the righteousness of Christ that we ascend into heaven. It's not based on our righteousness. Our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. We can't do it of our own volition. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for presenting us today with the goodness of your gospel that starts with the very fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there is a condemnation and there is a judgment that is coming because of that. But 
God, in justice and mercy and in righteousness, you have saved us through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us your Son. Give us a firm and strong faith that clings hold to him through every fiery trial, that denies every falsehood and lie that comes to try and steal his glory. You are our defender. You are our savior. You alone, God. And we thank you for your grace to us today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Hallelujah. Um, parallel passage I would like to read. Um, thank you, Jason. Jason works full-time. He's married. He's got three beautiful little girls. And he found enough time this week to study faithfully. Um, and you guys, you can see it, um, obviously. I'm not just trying to give you a big head or anything. But it's a joy for me um, to participate even in the study this week. Thank you for bringing God's word. I'm going to read 2 Timothy 3. It's a long passage with some encouragement at the end. Um, it's a good parallel passage. Um, and then we will pray and be dismissed. 2 Timothy 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpeasable slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was, those of, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while the evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Holy Father, Gracious God, steadfast, you are King, you are Lord, and we worship you. Help us even today as we go out into the world, as we go and we eat and we live in fellowship, we see our loved ones, we go to the park, we go to the store, whatever you have set before us today, that we live in the light of who you are. And that you have dealt with us graciously and mercifully sending us your word so that we can know you and be made right with you by sending your son to die on the cross on our behalf so that we can know you and be right with you. Help us to live and walk in the light of that, Father, today. Bless this body. Thank you for their, the gift that they are to me and to each other. Father, we do all of this for your glory and our good. In your son's precious name we pray, amen. Thank you.